0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation, hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk, or follow us on Twitter at ccsdham. The following lecture was presented in June 2019 at the New Song Conference, Biblical Hebrew Poetry as Jewish and Christian Scripture for the 21st Century. The conference was organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the Durham University Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society, and Politics, and Ashaw College. This lecture was given by Professor John Goldingay, Professor of Old Testament and the David Allen Hubbard Professor Emeritus of Old Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary, and is entitled, On Reading Genesis 49.
1: Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you my firstborn, my strength and the the initiation of my vigor, excellence in high position and excellence in strength, turbulence like water, you are not to excel because you climbed your father's big bed. Thereby you polluted one who pl- climbed my couch. Simeon and Levi, brothers, their blades, tools of violence. In their counsel, my person is not to come. In their congregation, my soul is not to join. Because in their anger, they killed someone. In their pleasure, they hamstrung an ox, cursed their anger because it was strong, their outburst because it was tough. I will divide them in Jacob, disperse them in Israel. Judah, you, your brothers will confess you. Your hand on your enemy's neck, your father's sons will bow down to you. A lion cub, Judah, from praise, son, you've gone up. He is bent down, lame like a lion, like a cougar. Who would rouse him? The staff will not leave from Judah, the scepter from beneath his feet, until there comes tribute to him and the obedience of the peoples to him. Tying his donkey to, to a vine, the offspring of his she-donkey to a choice vine, he has washed his clothing in wine, his garment in great blood. Darker of eyes than wine, whiter of teeth than milk. Zebulun. Towards the shore of the seas he will dwell. Towards the, the shore of the ships, him. his flank at Sidon. Issachar. A donkey, sturdy, lying among the sheepfolds. He has seen a resting place, how good it was, and the region, how beautiful. But he has bent his shoulder to the burden, become a conscript servant. Dan, his people will govern as one of the clans of Israel. May Dan be a snake by the road, a viper by the path, one that bites the horse's heels so its rider falls backwards. For your deliverance I have waited, Yahweh. Gad, an will, an, an, atta- an attacker will attack him, but he himself will attack their heel. From Asher, rich his bread, and he one who will give a king's delicacies. Naphtali, a hind set free, it gives fawns of the fold. A son, a wild donkey, Joseph, a son, a wild donkey, its daughters by a spring, he, he, it is stridden by a terrace. People made things bitter for him and fought. Archers were hostile towards him. But his bow stayed firm. His arms and his hands were agile. From the hands of the strong man of Jacob, from there the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From God your father, so he will help you. And Shaddai, so he will bless you. With blessings of the heaven above, blessings of the deep lying below, blessings of the breasts and the womb, Your father's blessings, they have been stronger than the blessings of those who conceived me. Beyond the desirable things on the long hills, they will come on Joseph's head, on the brow of one set apart among his brothers. Benjamin, a wolf who will maul, in the morning will eat prey, and towards the evening will divide spoil. My apologies that I have to uh, return home tonight for a family funeral tomorrow. And some apologies that I read a paper on Genesis 49 to the Society for Old Testament Study in January, and some people here were there for that. Uh, But I invited our organisers to look at it, and they asked if I could develop more the points about poetry and comment on how they might apply to other poetic texts. So I will be interweaving my comments on Genesis 49 with comments on Jeremiah which I happen uh, to be working on. As a piece of poetry, the Testament of Jacob works with some some conventions of Hebrew verse that we could haggle over, but that I will here take for granted. And I will take for granted the way the Masoretic text uses macaifs and thus generates the rhythm in the lines. While most lines are then syntactically self-contained, some involve enjolment, where a, where either a line is syntactically incomplete, or it leads into another line that cannot stand on its own. While the sayings about individual people and clans all take poetic form, beyond that feature they vary. In how far they focus on the individual, and in how far they focus on the clan, and in length, from two or three cola to eighteen or nineteen. Like poetry elsewhere in the Hebrew Scriptures, they switch easily between the second and third person. And using the second person means that rhetorically the poetry directly addresses the people named. Using the third person means that it speaks about these people to others who are listening because the declaration is significant for them. And or it puts the people who are the the subjects into the position of seeming to overhear statements that are actually about them. For related reasons, Jacob himself can switch between speaking as I and referring to himself as he. These uh, introductory rhetorical features relate to a question that intrigues me. Whatever the poems date, how do we think it was delivered to people and deceived by them? If the message of the prophets and the stories in Genesis reached ordinary people, how did they reach them? I assume that in some way written text and oral communication complemented each other and I infer from the rhythmic nature of Hebrew poetry that messages in poetry were chanted in some way and I invite my students to imagine prophets as like rap artists. Now. Rap artists can vary in the number of words in a line as long as they keep the rhythm going. The analogy with rap helps one to see how prophets could have chanted their messages while varying the length of lines and cola. They just had to keep the rhythm going. Did someone rap Jacob's testament? Simeon and Levi brothers, their blades tools of violence. In their counsel, my person is not to come. In their congregation, my soul is not to join. Because in their anger, they killed someone. In their pleasure, they hamstrung an ox. Curse their anger because it was strong. Their outburst because it was tough. I will divide them in Jacob. Disperse them in Israel. I still remember listening as an undergraduate to Gwyn Henton Davies declaim Isaiah's song about the vineyard in his preacherly Welsh Hebrew, and I won't mind if my students uh, remember my rapping Jeremiah. In connection with the poetic nature of Jacob's Testament, I make five comments. First, poetry may not be syntactically neat. It may be allusive and elliptical, He may not provide grammatical links between phrases and it leaves the audience to provide them in order to understand the lines. That requirement is then one one of the ways in which the audience has to involve itself with the message. And it means that we should resist the suggestion that we need to tidy the text up and make it easier to read. Thus, Jacob's comments about Reuben, excellence in high position, excellence in strength, and then turbulence like water, hang loosely onto the description of Reuben that precedes and that follows. In content, the phrases about excellence belong with what precedes, and the phrase about turbulence belongs with what follows, which is the way the Masoretes divided the verses. Jacob's point is that despite the excellence of Reuben's position and his energy, Reuben's turbulence means he will not excel in the future. But in form, the three noun phrases belong together. The form and the meaning thus work against each other. Typically, poetry sucks us in one direction, then discomforts us. In Jacob's closing line about Reuben, his curt condemnation refers to Reuben polluting his bed. The plural word for bed suggests its size, And the repetition of the verb climbed draws further attention to the impressive nature of this bed. Normally, one lies down on a mat on the floor. But with this final line about Reuben, Jacob moves from second person to third person in a way that doesn't strictly clash with Hebrew or English grammar, but it is nevertheless subtle and it requires close attentiveness. And it does tempt scholars into amending it. Jeremiah 2 can be elliptical, and in Jeremiah 2 an odd implication of poetry's elliptical nature is that it should make one more respectful of the text as it comes down to us, and resistant to the temptation to rewrite it. In connection with some particular elliptical words, William McCain comments, Since their sense is so suspect, they should be deleted. My reaction is the opposite. If a lion's sense is difficult, it deserves close attention. Jeremiah's declaration about a woman surrounding a man is an example. The saying may be an aphorism, which as such then parallels the elliptical nature of many aphorisms in Proverbs, whose puzzling effect derives in part from our not knowing their context and background. In a study of Ecclesiastes... Ah, Ecclesiastes got a mention! Uh, Elsa Tammes includes a list of Hispanic aphorisms which can seem obscure to someone from a different background. But she is able to explain them for the reader. In connection with the scriptures, attention to the language of of elliptical texts against the background of related texts may be illuminating. In the line about a woman surrounding a man, Jeremiah's reference to Yahweh creating a new thing could properly make one think about the significance of that language in Isaiah 40-55. And Jeremiah's use of the verb shavav could properly make one think of his own use of the verb shuv. For the modern student of Jeremiah, reading in light of modern thinking about women and men can produce interesting results in the interpretation of this declaration of Jeremiah's Though they may not be results that Jeremiah would recognise. Yet perhaps one should also recognise that speaking elliptically gives the audience an opening to discover things from one's words that one did not put there. The point parallels the observation that once something is put into writing and is put out there, the author loses control of its meaning. The great advantage of prose is its capacity for precision and clarity but it, therefore, it thereby sacrifices suggestiveness. The great advantage of poetry is the reverse. How wise of God to inspire both prose and poetry within the scriptures, and specifically within Jeremiah. If the poetry is allusive, it may encourage attention on the part of the poem's original hearers, and the audience may then in due course be more deeply affected by it. In his message about Egypt, Jeremiah begins, Get ready, breastplate and shield. Advance for battle. Why have I seen? They are shattered. They are falling back. The written scriptural text provides readers with an introduction telling them that the poem is about Egypt and that it relates to the imminent battle of Carthamish. But Judahites listening to Jeremiah in the temple courtyards might initially have no idea what it refers to. Though they might be aware that a decisive event was imminent and they might know that its result would be critically important for them. So Yahweh is giving them some insight about this decisive event. But in his poetry Jeremiah does not make clear who is commissioning these warriors, whether it be he or their commander or Yahweh, though it doesn't matter too much. The point is the actual commission. Nor does Jeremiah make clear whose warriors are being commissioned or whose warriors are running for their lives. For instance, Babylon's or Egypt's. And which way the listeners understood would make a difference to their potential response. Some people would be glad to hear of the comeuppance of the Egyptian army and the king that had defeated and killed Josiah. On the other hand, it was the Egyptians who had put Jehoiakim on the throne. An official Judahite policy was likely pro-Egyptian. And people who were inclined to see the Egyptians as, as potential allies and supporters wouldn't welcome the idea of an Egyptian defeat. The message indeed works with the elusiveness that often characterizes prophecy when it expresses itself in poetry. And it makes people listen and requires them to listen on if they are to get the point. Second, that same line about Reuben from which we started illustrates how Hebrew poetry likes anaphora, which is a posh way of saying it likes repetition. Like a suspicion of ellipsis, suspicion of repetition can generate suggestions about amending the text, but the suspicion is again inappropriate. An afra can be a means of heightening impact. Excellence in high position and excellence in strength, Jacob explains about Reuben. And then goes on that Reuben is not to excel, which adds to the devastating implications of his statement. You would have been worthy of the birthright, the dignity of the priesthood and the kingship, Caesar Jonathan comments. But because you sinned, my son, the birthright was given to Joseph. The kingship to Judah and the priesthood to Levi. The repetition adds to the impact. I find a famous example of anaphora in Jeremiah. I looked at the earth and here empty and void, and to the heavens and their light was not there. I looked at the mountains and here shaking and all the hills rocked. I looked and here humanity was not there, and every bird in the heavens they had flown. There was no semantic need to repeat the verb, I looked. But the effect is to keep taking us inside Jeremiah's own experience of looking and to imagine what he is imagining. The repetition makes it harder for it to be distanced from the scene that Jeremiah portrays. Third, Hebrew poetry can be sophisticated in its use of Paranomasia. In Jacob's address, Judah, Yehudah, is one whom his brothers will confess or recognize or praise. Yadah. Dan will govern. D. Gad will be the victim and the initiator of attack. Gardad, or Gud. Paranormous here opens the poet's eyes and opens the audience's eyes to, to things that we might otherwise not see or to links that we would not otherwise make. <coughs> Judah's brothers do, in due course, recognize him by recognizing David. Dan had seemed to lose out in the allocation of land to the clans, but in the end he triumphs. Gad, too, has a hard time with the vulnerability of its land, east of the Jordan. Jeremiah is fond of a particular form of paranomasia that uses an idiom whereby one combines the infinitive form of a verb with its finite form and thus emphasizes the actuality of what the expression refers to. But on several occasions he combines the infinitive of one verb with the finite form of a different but similar verb. And commentators are then again sometimes inclined to correct his formulation. I will gather and finish them off, Yahweh says on one occasion. More literally, in gathering I will finish them off. Gathering is an appropriate image in the context, because Yahweh goes on to talk about grapes and figs. But gathering is often a sinister metaphor for death, and thus it links neatly with the verb that suggests bringing about the end of something. So, fourth, Hebrew poetry likes to play with double meanings. So, is turbulence a critique of Reuben, as the subjugant suggests, or is it a warning about Reuben's fate, as the Vulgate and the targums suggest? Maybe it's both. In the saying about Simeon and Levi. Perhaps something similar applies to the word that I translated, "blades." For this word, the Sheffield Dictionary notes four possible alternative meanings. counsel, weapon, staff, and beguilement. If the word could be understood as having any of these meanings, they would not be inappropriate. The beginning of the Reuben verses notes that Reuben inherited an abundance of energy and forcefulness from Jacob. Because he was Jacob's firstborn. He is thus the first fruit of his father's manly strength, Rishit Oni. And one could have expect a first child to be full of such dynamism and, and vitality. But there are temptations attaching to the position of being number one, and Reuben fell for them. In light of what follows, one might imagine Jacob also being aware of the other possible meaning of Rishit Oni. The initiation of my trouble, as the Vulgate and Aquila and Symmachus understand it. Jeremiah promises, The waywardness of Israel will be looked for, but there will be none, and the wrongdoings of Judah, but they will not be found, because I will pardon whomever I let remain. Says. Does Jeremiah mean that there will be no waywardness to be found? because all waywardness will will be pardoned? Or does he mean that no waywardness will be manifested as a result of the creative potential of being pardoned and restored? In declaring characteristically that Judah's lifestyle is bringing disaster upon it, on one occasion Jeremiah adds, this is your ra'ah, because it's mar, because this has reached right to your heart. The word ra'ar usefully has the ambiguity of the English word bad. It covers both the bad things that people do and the bad things that happen to them. And it hints that often the bad things that we do issue uh, in bad things happening to us. Now, the Tanakh recognises that life doesn't always work out that way, but often it does. And Jeremiah sees this dynamic in, in Judah in his time. In the comment that I quoted, then, your raah is my Is Jeremiah talking about people's bad life or their bad fate? The effect of his language is to make them think about that question and about the implications of the two sides to the meaning of raah. Perhaps he sees dinus as one thing and as one thing and can move between behaviour and fate as aspects of the one thing. His words' ambiguity is heightened when he describes the ra as mar as bitterness, or as something bitter. Like ra, bitterness can be a description of the harshness and toughness of, wrong, of wrongdoers, or of the harshness or toughness of what happens to them as a result of their wrongdoing. And yet further, In the comment I quoted, Jeremiah has just referred to the rebelliousness that's expressed in Judah's wrongdoing. And rebel is the verb, marah. Rebellion is bitter in its execution and bitter in its results for the rebel. For Judah it is so, Jeremiah says, in the way it has reached right into your heart or your mind. Is there something dire and bitter about the very heart of Judah's life? And or, is there something dire and bitter about the results of its wrongdoing reached the very heart of its life? The nature and life of Jerusalem has found its organic outworking in the calamity that has come to it. Actions issue in consequences, which are aspects of the same reality. In Jacob's testimony, the most complex double meaning comes in the Joseph blessing. This example also takes me, fifthly, into the fact that poetry likes metaphor. Indeed, it is the key feature that distinguishes poetry from rhythmic prose. Metaphor, or simile, is a major way in which Jeremiah does his thinking, and not just his communicating. It is necessarily so, There are few things one can say literally about God and his relationship with us. We are bound to use metaphor in this connection. Metaphor does more than add to the impact of an idea. It makes ideas possible. It enables us to think and see things. And then it makes it possible to communicate them. Jeremiah compares with Hosea in the extravagant profusion of his metaphorical thinking and language. God is king. God is guide. God is master. God is builder, but also destroyer. God is shepherd. God is father. God is farmer. Metaphor makes it possible to speak about things that we could not otherwise speak of. It also makes it possible to say more about things that we could otherwise speak of. As we speak of one thing that we know in terms of another thing, that, uh, one thing that we don't know in terms of another thing that we do know. When poetry uses an image, it encourages the listener to reflect on the imagery. It opens up possibilities. Words in prose are more inclined to have tight, refined meaning, words in poetry are more open. In Jacob's testament, the first line about Joseph repeats itself as the Reuben verses do. The repetition gives the audience a chance to absorb the intriguing description of Joseph as a son who is porat. The Septuagint and the Vulgate and the Targums take porat as a participle from para that qualifies vain and then means fruitful but the form is anomalous, and the feminine is odd. Which makes one wonder if the word is a noun. Porat might also make you think of Ephraim. Back in Genesis 41, when Ephraim was born, Joseph already linked his name with the verb parah. It suggests fruitfulness. Directly or overtly, then, Jacob here speaks of Joseph, but as Luther put it, Ephraim is hiding behind the formulation of his words. When Jacob then comes to talk about Joseph's daughters, BDB takes the daughters to be the branches of that fruitful tree, but Barnot never elsewhere refers to plants, only to animate beings. But daughters might make make people think again about that word porat, and remember that pere is a wild donkey, so that a Porat could be a wild she donkey who would naturally have daughters. The Joseph clan is a female donkey then, which is definitely not an insult, not least because donkeys are really important. They are the equivalent of a pickup truck. And this understanding fits the animal imagery that's used to characterize many of the clans. The metaphor of daughters might then refer to the villages in Joseph's territory they would be equivalent to Judah's daughters, which appear elsewhere. But within the poem, as young donkeys, they suggest that Joseph, especially in the person of Ephraim, has the energy and agility that ranges free by springs and by the walled terraces that stretch along mountain slopes. Now, I apologize that outlining these possibilities is complicated and hard to assimilate when it's presented orally. Though, in a way, that problem is useful because it links with another aspect of that intriguing question concerning the way such a poem was delivered to people and received by them. How does one think about the communication of Hebrew poetry with its subtlety, ambiguity, ellipsis and paronomasia? When one listens to a poem for the first time, one may get aspects of it, but one will get more when one hears it again and then again the same dynamic will apply to reading it by oneself. Did Israelite prophets and poets hope that people would have their words ringing in their heads as they went away, and that they might see more of their implications as the words stayed with them? Or did they themselves assume that they would deliver their poems on a number of occasions, so that people might pick up more the second and third time? In this testament, Father Jacob introduces himself as a teacher instructing his sons and laying out the fruit of his insight for them. He thus parallels Father Solomon in Proverbs 1-9, who also speaks as a teacher laying out his insight for his sons. The actual authors of these poems hide discreetly behind Jacob and Solomon. They draw attention away from themselves and seek to enhance the impact of their teaching by inviting their audiences to collude with them in imagining it on the lips of these key figures. For both teachers, speaking in poetry makes for some memorability and allows the average line to look at its subject from two angles and to sustain interest. But Solomon's poetry in Proverbs 1-9 works by being simple and univocal, There may be double meanings. The strange woman may be an allegorical figure, but the surface meaning is clear and important. Jacob's poetry is denser, and it thrives on being equivocal. While Jacob does speak as a father teacher, in the opening verse of the chapter, he announces that he is going to declare what is to happen in days to come, which makes him sound more like a prophet. And prophets often do speak in dense and puzzling ways. So Jacob is as much like Jeremiah as like Solomon. Jeremiah is more puzzling than, say, Amos. He likes Paranamosia and ellipse and ambiguity, as Jacob does. And he likes animal imagery, as Jacob does. I've suggested that some of the old pass over Jacob's poetry, as over aspects of Jeremiah, derives from the assumption that Jacob surely spoke univocally. And there are advantages in being easy to understand. But it's also possible to make things too easy for people, with the result that they get it at one level, but at another level fail to get it. And sometimes the necessity of working hard to understand ultimately helps understanding. When Jacob is difficult to understand, the answer may be to work with the puzzles and the ambiguities rather than seeking to eliminate them. I don't see why subtle, elusive poetry and straightforward, plain poetry shouldn't have been directed at the same people at the same time, as we ourselves may profit from being addressed plainly and univocally, and then elusively and puzzlingly. The Jeremiah scroll alternates between the univocal and the elusive, whether or not Jeremiah himself was responsible for both. I assume that Jacob's poetic rhetoric was designed to get some convictions home to people, to help them with their understanding of what it meant to be Israel and of the situation of experience of of the 12 clans. The inclusion of Jacob's testament in the Torah implies that it continued to be significant for the people of God. It is indeed a high point in Genesis, a climax to the book a sometimes enigmatic poem that is animated and vibrant, thoughtful, provoking, and suggestive, significant, and challenging. Thank you.